You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm your co-host, Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? Doing well. It's good to be back with you. We have a presidential trip to look forward to. U.S. President Donald J. Trump will be making his first trip to the Asia-Pacific region since being inaugurated earlier this year. He's certainly met several Asian leaders. He's hosted them in Washington, D.C., and he had a major trip to Middle East and Europe earlier this year. But uh, this will be his first major trip to the Asia-Pacific region, and um, it'll be it'll be quite a trip. Uh, it's going to last for a while, from November 3rd to 14th, 11 days. It will take him to a range of countries, including U.S. allies, Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. And he'll also stop over in China and Vietnam, certainly important countries for the U.S. agenda in the Asia-Pacific as well. Um, and, you know, this trip comes at an interesting moment. We we haven't really seen this administration articulate a clear and unique Asia strategy from its predecessor. Uh, you know, both you and I were at the Shangri-La Dialogue in mm-hmm. the summer in Singapore, and we certainly heard uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis um, repeat quite a bit of what the Obama administration had already said. It was a, it was a familiar attack on the Asia-Pacific. Um, but, you know, as we've discussed on the podcast before, uh, this administration's attentions in Asia have certainly been monopolized by the North Korea issue, which no doubt is a serious issue, but uh, we haven't really seen signs that the U.S. can, you know, walk and chew gum in Asia, so to speak. Um, Things like the South China Sea haven't received comparatively as much verbal attention, even though we have seen an uptick in freedom of navigation operations, for example. So this trip, I think, presents an interesting opportunity for um, President Trump to show us where he's planning on taking Asia policy over the remainder of his term in office. Um... So I figured, Prashant, uh, the way we can maybe do this episode is just kind of walk through the expectations in each of mm-hmm. Trump's five stops. Um, so, you know, first, I guess uh, he's going to Japan. So, yeah, a lot to look forward there. I mean, what's on your what's on your mind when it comes to Japan? Um, I, I think, you know, the, the you framed the overall trip correctly, which is that, you know, you, this trip initially was seen as quite a triumph because of the low expectations of the administration, um, you know, particularly his attendance at, you know, the ASEAN and APEC meetings in the Southeast Asia Lake that we're going to talk about later. Um, but for now, I mean, what's happened uh, more recently is now there are high expectations about what he'll actually say when he's in the region, right? It's questions about whether what he'll say will actually matter, doubts on North Korea, you know, and on so many other fronts as well. I think the you're, you're right to sort of divide it into two legs, the sort of Northeast Asia component and the Southeast Asia component. Um, in the official agenda that was released in, in South Korea and Japan, it seems like you know the, the focus is unsurprisingly going to be on solidifying these alliances focused on North Korea primarily before he heads to China, where he's going to be dealing with sort of a uh, Xi Jinping that is coming out of you know the, sort of the post-party Congress in a very strong position, relatively speaking. So that's sort of the big plug for the Northeast Asia leg. But, you know, you've been writing extensively on, on, on North Korea as well and some of these dynamics there. What, what's your sense based on where uh, the, the agenda has been set officially, what we might see when he goes in? Looks like, you know, there's a number of engagements that have been officially announced, like, you know, military service member meetings, meetings with, with abductee families in Japan. A lot of it's on North Korea, but you know what can we expect on Northeast Asia on that front? 
Yeah, so I think the Japan leg is going to be certainly interesting. I mean, first of all, you know, on the Japanese side, they're about to have a snap election later this month. Uh, Shinzo Mm -hmm. Abe and the Liberal Democratic Party appear pretty well positioned for a landslide victory. So I'm not too worried. Um, In fact, the White House in its statement just said that they're going to be meeting Shinzo Abe. I think they pretty much assume that it's going to be the same prime minister in town in Tokyo. But, you know, if Abe wins this election, he'll have potentially a stronger mandate for action on North Korea, which could lead to a range of issues um, coming up at this meeting between Abe and Trump. Certainly one of the things I'm watching for is any major announcements on missile defense cooperation. Japan is... um, Obviously, already cooperating with the United States extensively, for example, mm-hmm. the SM-3 Block 2A interceptor system, uh, part of the Aegis system that is both deployed with Japanese, that will be deployed with Japanese and American destroyers, is planned to enter service in uh, 2018. Um, so that's something to look forward to. But also, Japan may um, make moves on Aegis Ashore, uh, an important missile defense component for it, it as well. Uh, we've obviously seen the stakes change a bit for Tokyo with the two ballistic missile overflights of Japan. Um, But, you know, I think it's also notable that Trump will be meeting with uh, a North Korean abductee families in Tokyo. I think that restores an important issue, certainly for Tokyo, to the top of the agenda when it comes to North Korea. It's no longer just a ballistic missile threat that we're talking about, but we're also talking about, you know, the the longstanding issue of Japanese citizens that have been abducted um, by North Korea, which continues to be an important element of the Abe government's um, policy towards Pyongyang. And there's certainly been some interesting movement on that front back in 2015 and 2016. So it'll be interesting to see if if Japan receives any interesting assurances from the United States on that count. Uh, but, you know, I'm expecting more of the same when it comes to North Korea. Right. There is also the trade and economics angle, which, you know, has been left out a little, I feel. You know, just earlier this week, um, uh, Japanese Vice Prime Minister uh, Taro Aso was in D.C. to meet with Mike Pence. The two of them uh, continue uh, continued the second meeting of their um, economic channel on trade ties, which was set up in February when Abe came to Washington. Um, it was essentially the way to take U.S.-Japan bilateral trade talks forward after the demise of TPP, obviously. And it's interesting. I mean, those talks really haven't gone anywhere so far, and there's been a little bit of acrimony, uh, it seems, um, which is unsurprising given the Trump administration's overall posture towards free trade. But it'll be interesting to see um, how trade figures when um, in in Trump's meetings in Japan when he's there. Yeah, I think we should also make a plug for the two previous podcasts you know we've done um, on Japan and and South Korea and North Korea, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I had uh, Tobias Harris on the podcast to talk yeah. a bit about Japanese public opinion leading up to the snap election, which was a fascinating podcast. Tobias was a great observer of these things. And also had uh, Stephen Denny, who's a close observer of South Korean domestic politics, to talk a bit about domestic politics in South Korea as the North Korean situation heats up. Yeah, and both of those are great, so I'd really encourage listeners to, to go take a look at that, those two. Yeah, so uh, do you want to talk a bit about the South Korean leg of the trip then? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think the, you know, besides the, I think in both Japan and South Korea, you know, you do have, you know, these engagements, you know, engaging with military service members, a lot of focus on the military component of the trip. Um, but also he'll deliver a, an address at, at the National Assembly that's going to be focused uh, on North Korea, which I think will be sort of you know, a lot of attention will be focused on there and, and, and that before he heads to China. So that will sort of be the big sort of pull there. Um, and I think what this Trump White House so far has been focusing on is, is very much on 
under the Obama administration, you saw an attempt to, beyond traditional alliances, look at comprehensive and strategic partnerships like Vietnam, like Singapore, formalizing these partnerships. But here under the Trump White House, so far what we've seen is a focus more on traditional alliances, which is no surprise because, you know, in Northeast Asia, these traditional alliances are needed for the North Korean threat. Um, and in Southeast Asia, you know, uh, which we'll talk about later, Thailand, the Philippines, those both those alliances were a bit in trouble towards the end of the Obama administration because of domestic politics and, you know, threat misperceptions there. So in South Korea, I think that will sort of be um, the biggest draw. And I think the, the big plug will be Japan and South Korea getting those alliances right before uh, moving on to China. The other thing, you know, we should also mention is that this is happening at a time when, you know, you have uh, the U.S. and North Korea, uh, the U.S. and South Korea engaging in exercises um, that are sort of ramping up potential tensions in the Korean Peninsula. And you have also, you know, sort of always on the back burner, people speculating about when the North Koreans might have a next missile or nuclear test or do some other kind of provocation while Trump is in the region and when China is having its party congress as well that's set, set to kick off. So a very active time when this uh, Asia trip is happening as well. Yeah, um, the South Korean leg is interesting. I mean, certainly everything you said, uh, I think, will be in play. Um, you know, alliance reassurance, I should also note in the case of Japan, is it's just overall it's a more difficult task right now in Northeast Asia for the Trump administration. That's part of the problem of the North Korean um, ICBM, as we've talked about on previous podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, you know, I've noticed that, um, you know, for example, the recent Japan-U.S. 2 plus 2 meeting of uh, foreign and defense officials, it was interesting to note the prominence of the extended deterrence language. I think we'll see that certainly be in play in both Tokyo and uh, South Korea. Um, and also, you know, I should note in South Korea, Trump uh, reportedly, according to South Korean reports at least, is, is supposed to head to the to the demilitarized zone mm -hmm. to carry out some sort of gesture towards North Korea. We don't really know what it is. He could pick up a megaphone and start yelling across the DMZ. We'll, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, certainly Mike Pence had a, um, had a moment when he was at the DMZ himself with his, uh, you know, Absolutely. resolve face where he tried to, he said that it was important for North Korea to see the resolve on his face. So maybe we'll see something like that out of Trump. Um, but a few other things, you know, I mean, uh, the South Koreans are making a pretty, big, a pretty big deal about the fact that this is going to be the first state visit by a U.S. president in 25 years, mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting uh, feature. I mean, formally, I mean, yes, Obama, Bush, Clinton visited South Korea, but uh, their visits weren't actually state visits, which are the costs are borne by the South Korean government. So in a way, they're honoring Trump um, beyond what they'd shown to the past three U.S. presidents. So that, uh, you know, in a way, it's notable itself. And part of me wonders if that's to, you know, prevent Trump from making a huge stink while he's in Seoul about the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement chorus. Certainly, yep. that's been one of the, you know, issues in the alliance that I think a lot of observers of security affairs, at least, have been a little bit perplexed by. I mean, uh, you know, it's precisely the wrong time to kind of raise something like that when you're trying to reassure an ally after North Korea has introduced an ICBM and tested it two times this year. Um, so, you know, a part of me wonders um, just how how strongly, you know, the economic issues will again come to bear in Seoul, since certainly that could be an important way that um, this trip could be derailed. But I think, you know, if um, assuming that Trump's staff managed to keep the guardrails on this visit and maintain a, you know, a core focus on the alliance, on reassurance, on North Korea, 
there is a potential for this to be a, a fairly successful visit as well. And the South Koreans will obviously be looking to um, potentially discuss things like their own autonomous strike capabilities within the alliance, operational control transfer, which uh, remains ongoing. Um, it'll be good for Moon and Trump to address that in some form uh, during the visit. So yeah, there's definitely uh, plenty on the agenda in, in South Korea. Absolutely. And I think you're you're right to bring up the economic angle, both for Japan and South Korea. I think, you know, very um, predictably, the official uh, White House travel uh, list for the president in terms of his engagements only mentioned economic events with respect to China and then also his regional speech in Vietnam for APAC. You know, there wasn't any thing at all economic on Japan and South Korea, precisely because I think of what you said, which is the economic picture looks very, very cloudy and doesn't really align with what the administration is sort of trying to do, which is to sort of paint over some of this uh, rhetoric, particularly on the trade side, but also the fact that, you know, it really is missing uh, a big economic piece on its its, its Asia agenda, right? I mean, it, it's seen in this very sort of protectionist bent about what the region can do for the United States, but in terms of what the United States has for plants in the region, that's something that we really haven't seen so far. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk a bit about the China leg next, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. This was actually interesting. The White House was fairly vague about the agenda in China. It just said, you yep. know, they'll discuss kind of regional, global issues and bilateral issues. Um, and there's not much more detail. I mean, obviously, North Korea will feature prominently. Trump has actually been fairly, you know, as recently as this week, he's been saying fairly good things about China's sanctions enforcement and compliance. Um, I think the facts are a little different, but you know, I think the Trump administration <laughs> sees um, the Security Council resolutions with Chinese support this summer as as important victories on its North Korea policy. So it remains to be seen, you know, how that leg of the visit will go down uh, when Trump is in Beijing. And, you know, as you noted uh, correctly, uh, you know, China will be out of its 19th Party Congress by the time this visit takes place. That's an interesting variable, I think, just because all, you know, all along this year, it's kind of been a cliche to just hear analysts point to the 19th Party Congress as sort of a limiting factor on China's risk acceptance in foreign policy. You know, people have been saying that China wants things to go off pretty smoothly um, through, uh, you know, as the year goes on until its 19th Party Congress. And it remains to be seen if Beijing might, you know, take a slightly different approach after the Congress. Um, I think it's it's difficult to say what way that will go. Uh, Xi Jinping will be coming out of this Congress, presumably more emboldened with his leadership consolidated and, and extended for another five years. So um, it is possible yep. that this second meeting between Trump and Xi will be a little bit less cordial and uh, less smooth than the Mar-a-Lago summit, which was their first face-to-face -face meeting. Certainly the Chinese were a little uncertain about what to expect out of Trump during that meeting. But I think, you know, now everybody's got a little bit of a better idea of what to expect from this administration. So I think it'll be um, it'll be really an interesting visit um, when, when Trump heads to Beijing. And certainly, you know, again, we have to bring up the economic angle, um, especially with Wilbur Ross's recent visit to China and the uh, the trade channel with Beijing. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen if um, if Trump will pursue that. Um, energetically, in addition to the North Korea issue, I think it's certainly likely. Um, but yeah, I think I think this is for me at least the big uh, question mark on this trip is how how Trump's time in Beijing will really pan out. Absolutely, and and also you know broader questions about the administration's China policy and where exactly it is. Right, I mean, earlier on, I think people expected at the initial stages, based on what we saw coming out from people close to the Trump team, that they would take a very tough line on on China. But very quickly then we saw this sort of um, you know, narrative come out that the Trump administration was trying to use China to somehow get to a resolution on North Korea. The extent to which that is true is, is, is unclear because that was going on amidst a broader conversation about 
trade policy and economic issues and how to manage that, but then also, you know, South China Sea and some of these other troubling manifestations of Chinese behavior. And I really don't think we've seen where the Trump administration is yet in terms of of its China policy, which is worrying because, as you correctly noted, if indeed uh, folks are right in saying that you know, Xi Jinping had a reason to be a bit more conservative and cautious before the party congress, now that he's not burdened by that anymore, if we do see the Chinese taking more assertive actions in other areas, that could complicate the Trump administration's own, you know, finding its own footing on China policy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you know that's uh, certainly something to watch for uh, during mm-hmm. this Asia visit. Um, but hey, Prashant, let's turn our attention a little southward now to um, Vietnam and the Philippines, the, the two final legs of Trump's visit, which I think are interesting not only for the bilateral meetings that Trump will be having there with um, the various um, you know Duterte and uh, the Vietnamese head of state, but um, also because of the multilateral engagements. I mean, I think it's quite remarkable that Trump, you know, someone like Trump who is so hostile openly to the idea of, you know, free trade, quote unquote, will be attending the APEC summit. I mean, that in itself is going to be something quite remarkable, I think. Uh, just, uh, you know, looming over the whole summit, we'll have further conversations on FTAP. Um, so that's, um, you know, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how that plays out. And then obviously, as you noted, the uh, the ASEAN um, summits in uh, Manila on the 50th anniversary year of, um, of ASEAN as well. Uh, but, you know, let's start with the Vietnam leg. Um, so first, I guess, let's talk about the bilateral leg of this. I mean, uh, the Obama administration, in its final year in office, considerably accelerated the partnership with Vietnam. The partial lifting of the arms embargo, certainly Obama's own visit, and, um, you know, just the associated U.S.-Vietnam rhetoric was was quite remarkable. I mean, Vietnam is really one of the darlings for the United States right now in the Asia-Pacific, a huge partner on uh, everything from the South China Sea to, you know, I mean, I mean, trade. I mean, but, you know, Hanoi does feel a little spurned by the fate of the TPP and the Trump administration's withdrawal. But I think there is generally still enthusiasm in Vietnam for um, continuing this rapprochement with the United States. So what's your uh, what's your expectation for how how this trip is going to look, at least as far as the bilateral engagement goes? Yeah, so on on the bilateral engagement, I I think the Vietnamese, uh, you know, even until recently, weren't sure whether Trump, in addition to attending APEC, which is in Da Nang, would actually go for an official visit back in Hanoi, um, where he'd be meeting with Vietnamese officials. So I think that's a positive thing for U.S.-Vietnam relations, because Trump's already met with uh, the Vietnamese prime minister, who was here in Washington already, the the first sort of high-level Southeast Asian official to meet uh, with Trump in the White House. Um, but now the fact that Trump is doing this um, in Vietnam is, as you correctly pointed out, testament to the fact that the United States really sees Vietnam as one of these key partners um, in the Asia-Pacific and in Southeast Asia as well. So, so that alone is, is significant. I think um, what remains to be seen is, as, as you pointed out, I mean, the Obama administration already did a lot of heavy lifting on U.S.-Vietnam relations, including um, the lifting of the arms embargo, which was a huge boost for for normalization of U.S.-Vietnam relations. What remains to be done is, you know, the the the, the steps from the Vietnamese perspective, um, buying U.S. defense equipment, which is not going to be easy, and also worries from the perspective of the United States about withdrawal from TPP on the economic side. And I think the Vietnamese will want reassurance on that too because that was a huge agreement uh, for Vietnam not just bilaterally but also regionally so I think you know the the bilateral part of it um, you know I, I think the sim- symbolism is important 
but I wouldn't expect too many significant developments substantively because a lot of that's already been worked out um, in the White House visit and subsequent working visits as well. Right. Um, the the regional part on APEC is going to be the other interesting component. In. Yeah. Um, you know. So on on APEC, I mean, so how do you how do you really see that going? I mean, just in terms of I guess the mood at the summit. I mean, APEC is very much a forum for dialogue and consultation. Uh, it doesn't really result. It doesn't result in any sort of you know binding kind of declarations or. Um, agreements in itself. It's a forum to promote trade cooperation among among its member states. How do you think the presence of just someone like Trump there will will go over this year? I mean, we've never really had a variable like this. Every U.S. president that's gone to APEC is usually leading the charge for greater cooperation and integration. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the Vietnamese, too, were, I think, initially quite worried about <laughs> the potential outcome of the summit, you know, particularly given some of Trump's comments on, on free trade thus far. Um, I, I think the, the positive thing is that, um, you know, he's he's set to at, at the CEO summit in APEC, at least deliver some kind of regional speech about, you know, the, the, the White House official wording is, you know, freedom and openness in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so if that's some sort of um, articulation by the Trump administration of where it wants to go in Asia, not only on the security side, but also a broader vision that includes economics as well, that's going to be a positive thing because at least he'll be saying something of consequence in terms of opportunities rather mm -hmm. than viewing the, the economic part of it uh, as a challenge. I, I still think, though, that um, irrespective of what he's going to be saying, I mean, you have had Trump administration officials in Washington and in Asia repeatedly saying things like, you know, TPP, we did have to pull out, but, you know, we can get at some of these bilateral deals. There are other ways in which we can resolve these problems that need to be resolved. But there really isn't much there there. I mean, it, the fact is, under the Bush administration, you saw the exact same thing happen, where they started off trying to negotiate a lot of these bilateral deals. They got somewhere with some of these countries, like Singapore, you know, U.S.-Singapore Free Trade Agreement. But on other countries, like Malaysia, that were in that were in TPP, they weren't able to negotiate a bilateral agreement. And I so far haven't seen a clear articulation about how there can be an alternative to TPP that the Trump administration is proposing um, or some other economic arrangements or mix that can actually make up for the gains in TPP. And meanwhile, you do have uh, the TPP 11 at least moving incrementally forward and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership and FTAP moving forward uh, as well. So you're right, the Trump administration is going to be a little bit behind on that. And even if you know the, the, the speech goes really well and it's well received, I think given how unorthodox this administration has been in terms of its foreign policy, Asia policy, domestic politics, and we have so many senior posts unfilled in the administration, there's still any questions about whether what, what the speech actually means and mm -hmm. whether it will actually be implemented. You know, So I think that's the the bigger question. I mean, the strategy is great, and we've all been talking about the fact that the Trump administration needs to say something, and that's great. But uh, I think soon after that, people will start asking questions about, you know, whether any of this actually matters or not. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought up the speech. It's uh, it's actually, I think, one of my more anticipated uh, moments during this trip. I mean, I've actually been wondering if this trip might be the first U.S. articulation of a vision contrary to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, part of that, I think, is spurred by, you know, Mattis had this statement recently during a congressional hearing where he came out and effectively, you know, um, gave a fairly blunt 
rebuff, you know, a rebuttal to China's Belt and Road Initiative calling for openness um, in, in Asia-Pacific infrastructure, financing and governance and trade. Um, and I wonder if, if something like that is going to make it, make it into the speech in Danang. That would be quite interesting. Um, and mm-hmm. it would certainly take a different tack than, you know, the United States took in May when um, a delegation went to the Belt and Road Forum in China. And it could certainly set us up for an interesting um, geopolitical mood, uh, you know, as China comes out of the 19th Party Congress and as we head into 2018, where the United States, Japan and India potentially might be the three kind of big poles in, in the Asia-Pacific, um, explicitly interested in countering China's vision of the Belt and Road. Um, so that'll be something I'll be watching for, too. But that might be a little bit optimistic. I mean, coming up with a strategy to really counter the Belt and Road, like you said, you know, it will require filling those senior positions at the State Department, uh, thinking strategically in a way that we really haven't seen yet. Um, but, mm-hmm. hey, I'm, I'm totally willing to be be pleasantly surprised by by the speech in Danang. Um, let's uh, let's close out now with uh, the final leg of the trip in in the Philippines. Um, so I mean, the bilateral here I think has been on everyone's minds since uh, last November when Trump <laughs> won the the Trump Duterte meeting, uh, the meeting of you know two unconventional state leaders with some characteristics in common. Um, certainly for Trump, uh, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, not a very big focus on values based leadership and diplomacy. And Duterte is obviously infamous for his drug war and tolerance of human rights violations, extrajudicial killings. What's your expectation for the bilateral meeting here? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about the specifics of the bilateral meeting, you know, whether there will actually be a a separate summit meeting, whether they'll both be put aside and and spend some time working out um, specifics and have a broader conversation, or whether it's going to be a quick sort of pull aside meeting. And, And if you read carefully the, the the White House statement, it doesn't really clarify what the shape of the meeting will be. In fact, it just says, you know, he'll be meeting with Duterte and other Southeast Asian leaders as part of this broader U.S.-ASEAN summit. So I think we'll have to see what the shape of that meeting is, because you're right. I mean, th- these are two personalities that, um, you know, the, this, the format of the meeting and, you know, the extent to which they'll be engaging with the press will all matter, because, um, you know, even after Trump leaves, uh, you know, Duterte could you know, give a statement that essentially nullifies any progress uh, that could have been made and, and Trump, you know, vice versa, same way. So, you know, I, I think that's going to be the big variable looming over it. Um, but I think there's also a bit of nervousness in terms of those in both the U.S. and the Philippines that work on this relationship because it actually has been going pretty well. I mean, starting from when Duterte came in and sort of talked about being, you know, the sort of independent foreign policy moving away from the U.S. closer towards China, You've actually seen the United States and the Philippines, particularly on the defense side, move actually quite quickly and robustly on on, on some areas. And the big catalyzing factor here is is the um, the incident in Marawi, mm-hmm. um, the siege by Islamic State backed militants, you know, back in May. That you know, kind of seems to be um, with the killing of the two Islamic State leaders recently, um, to be in terms of its ending of this phase. And we don't know where it's going to be from later on, but certainly that's been a catalyzing factor in, in promoting this alliance sort of back again. So I think the, the big sort of banner um, on the, the bilateral meeting will be sort of, you know, to what extent is the U.S.-Philippine alliance back, uh, so to speak? And, you know, to what extent are these leaders actually going to promote that notion or undermine that notion, whether they're actually there and, and, and when they leave? But 
the other part of this bilateral meeting is going to be the, you know, sort of the, this is the 50th anniversary of ASEAN and also the 40th anniversary of U.S.-ASEAN relations. So there is going to be sort of the celebratory, um, you know, uh, dinners, celebrations in typical ASEAN style. And I think this is actually something that um, ASEAN leaders are going to be worried about because, you know, as you started saying at the start of this podcast, um, you know, this is a really long trip. And this is the last leg um, that Trump's going to be on. He's not a huge fan of these big, long foreign trips. And, you know, if he's tired going to some of these ASEAN meetings, which can be <laughs> quite boring for most folks, right. uh, you know, it it, uh, it sets up an interesting scenario as to whether we might see some interesting tweets or, or statements coming out from him just because he's a little bit tired of the yeah. Yeah. And we've observed that stamina problem, uh, you know, with his G20 performance, certainly. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I, I, I think this isn't a baseless fear that the ASEAN leaders have. Um, it will be interesting to see how he kind of tolerates um, a lot of this travel as well. Um, but yeah, I think I think we hit on kind of all of the major points to watch for on this trip. I mean, it really is going to be. Um, an important diplomatic trip for the Trump administration. It'll really be a chance to show that, you know, the administration can get its act together on Asia's strategy. Uh, certainly, you know, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but for um, Rex Tillerson, who's been under the, you know, heat lamp a bit in the press lately, um, amid perceptions that his influence is waning and his future in the administration appears uncertain, um, you know, a, a solid performance out of this trip could also be a way to to demonstrate that you know diplomacy does continue to carry some weight for this administration, which really doesn't appear to be clear right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this will certainly be an important moment. Um, so any uh, any final thoughts, Prashant, before we close out? I, I did just one final one, I, I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned this. Actually, um, you know the values question, right? Um, democracy and human rights. You know, bo both of the the Southeast Asia trips, the Philippines and Vietnam. Um, you know, matter in terms of human rights and, and democracy, certainly domestically, not in terms of the Trump administration and the White House so much, but uh, with respect to Congress, right? And so um, the Trump administration may not address these issues uh, and put them front and center, but I definitely think, you know, if they don't get their act together on this piece of U.S.-Asia policy, just as we saw in the Obama administration, it can come back to bite you either in the form of congressional opposition. So that's something to flag as well, because you're right. I mean, particularly in the Philippines with Duterte's drug war, um, you know, that's making some domestic actors in U.S. foreign policy very unhappy. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for joining me today, Prashant. Always good to always good to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, and for our listeners, if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on other iTunes, Google Play, or a variety of other outlets. And if you have subscribed, but you haven't left us a review, please do so as well. It really helps get the uh, get the show out there. And um, we'll be back next week with more. If you're interested in hearing something on this podcast that you haven't heard on Asian geopolitics, please do drop either me or Prashant a note. We'd be happy to consider it for inclusion in a future episode. Thanks for listening.